wait. I'm always eager for this uh, Sunday to come around simply because of the collect. Because, as you know, I'm a Bible nerd. And this is the Bible nerd collect because Thomas Cranmer, writing in the 16th century as he developed our prayer book, uh, wrote this prayer that tells us to hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest Scripture. I don't, he did not leave anything out there, okay? There's nothing more you could do with Scripture. Now, I thought we would do something a little bit different, and I hope it's fun for you today, and I hope it's helpful. So you will find at the ends of the pews, there are pens. There are little pens. So if you could, whoever's closest to the end could distribute those to people who don't have a writing utensil. We are literally going to hear, which we already did, read together, learn mark with our pens, literally, and hopefully go from this place inwardly digesting what Scripture has to say to us today. So get your bulletin open to Hebrews chapter 10. This is a something comes from a method called inductive Bible study, and some of you have tried this before and saw the, um, the, uh, the fruit of digging into Scripture this way and marking it all up. I recommend getting a Bible that, you know, maybe not your nicest Bible, but one that you don't care about marking up and really learning how to make a practice of this as you read through Scripture. A uh, good old ex-evangelical that I am, my Bibles are all kinds of marked up with highlighters and Sharpies and uh, everything else. So we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 10 and just walk through it today because it is a such a rich passage that has the fullness of the gospel in it and not only that, the benefits, some of the benefits of the gospel. So we're just going to walk right through it. Now, little, just very little bit of context. Hebrews is what I call a confidence booster for Christians that calls us to uh, continue to trust in the cross of Jesus for our salvation, no matter what. And the Hebrew, the letter to the Hebrews is written to people in the early church who are under threat of persecution, a largely Jewish crowd, and they're under the threat of persecution from probably fellow Jews and so are being tempted to take their allegiance away from Jesus where they've given it and to go back to the old system of temple sacrifices and rituals and those sorts of things. And so the letter is written to uh, inspire faithfulness and allegiance to Jesus. That's the gist of it. So we're just going to walk through, and I'm going to uh, prompt you to do some markings as we walk through this, and I hope that's helpful. Right away, he begins like this. And every priest stands day after day at his service, offering again and again the same sacrifices that can never take away sins. Okay, ready? Circle that phrase, sacrifices that can never take away sins. What does he mean? Sacrifices that can never take away sins. See, the old sacrificial system of the Old Testament, the temple rituals and sacrifice system, it gave ritual purity. It was really a system that uh, cleansed sacred space so people could come into the presence of God. But what it couldn't do is actually wipe out sin from the human heart and remove the stain of guilt from sin. So it was it was insufficient when we measure it up with what Jesus did, which is what he is going to go on and talk about. So moving on, and this is verse 12 in, in, in your Bible. But when, now, now stop, let's stop right there, but, you see that but, you need to like double underline that and write an exclamation mark by it or something. Just, just make a big deal out of that but, because you better believe when they say the old system did this and then they say but, they're about to say something really important. But when Christ had offered for all time 
a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. Okay, now circle a single sacrifice for sins. And what I would do is I would draw a little line in between that circle and what you just circled. Can never take away sins and a single sacrifice for sins. So that you see the big contrast that the writer is trying to make here. Now, don't miss the contrast. Again, old sacrificial system, ritual purity. Jesus' sacrifice removes the stain of guilt once and for all and purifies the human heart. And he's going to say more about that in just a couple of verses. Now, he says, he sat down, and there's quotation marks around this, he sat down at the right hand of God. What does he mean by that? Well, in the old system, the priests stood. They always stood. And one priest offered the sacrifice, next guy on shift comes in, and he stands and offers sacrifice. Next guy comes in, he stands and offers sacrifice, and it was never over. They never sat down because the work wasn't finished. The system had to keep going on. And so an author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus, after offering a single sacrifice, sat down at the right hand of God. He's telling us the work of sacrifices is done. It is done. It is gone. It is complete. There are no more of those. It also tells us this. God is pleased with the sacrifice because he doesn't just give Jesus a seat. He gives him the place of honor at his right hand. God is perfectly pleased with the sacrifice of Jesus. Now, in the next verse says this, and this comes from another place in the Old Testament. He says, and since then, he has been waiting until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet. And I think there's quotation marks around that. And you can jot this in your margin just for your own information. Psalm 110. He's quoting Psalm 110. And the New Testament authors, this is the most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament because it pointed forward to a Messiah king who would follow from the line of David. And subjecting his enemies was a way of saying that he will bring in the Gentile nations and subject them to himself. Well, how does Jesus do that? He sends the gospel out to all nations. The the good news is not just for Israel, God's people, it's for all nations. And so he subjects the nations to himself through his sacrifice. Now, it's also perhaps a warning to readers, and we'll see why he does this. It's perhaps a warning to readers to not become enemies of the risen Christ, but to rather reckon themselves friends and companions. And we'll see how that's possible. Moving on. For by a single offering, and you know I'm going to tell you to circle that, for by a single offering, and then this next phrase, you're going to put a box around it or whatever you want, exclamation points, it's key to the passage, it's central. He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. He has perfected. What does he mean by that? He means it's done. Salvation is done. If you have placed your faith in Jesus and what he has done for you, your status before God has been perfected. Now, this is what it means to trust in Jesus for your salvation. This is what it's like. It's like looking to God the Father. It's like coming before God and looking to Jesus and saying, will you apply his perfect sacrifice to my account? And the father says, I was hoping you would ask. 
Your sins are forgiven. You're free. You're no longer my enemy. You are my friend. Amazing. John Bunyan, who you all know, wrote Pilgrim's Progress in the 16th century. He wrote some other things on, on grace. And he says this, and he's kind of speaking as God the Father. And he says, Sinner, thou thinkest that because of thy sins and infirmities, I cannot save thy soul. But behold, my son is by me, and upon him I look, and not on thee, and will deal with thee according as I am pleased with him. Now, perfected doesn't mean that you never fall into sin because you're all sitting out there and I am too and we're despairing. I'm not perfect. It doesn't mean that you never fall into sin or make a financial error or a bad fashion choice. God knows we do that all the time. And let's be honest, let's be honest. By the time you get home from church today, you will have already fallen into sin at least once, especially if you have kids in the car with you. But in all seriousness, all over the New Testament, we're reminded if we fall into sin, we have a mediator, an advocate who advocates for us on our behalf before the Father. This is why every week when we come together and in a few minutes we'll do this, we say together, most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you. And then we go on and we say, for the sake of our good works that have merited your favor. That's what we say, right? No. We say, for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. See, we appeal to what Jesus has done on our behalf so that we might once again receive the abundance of the Father's mercy. Now, the question naturally arises, and and, and some of you hooligans are thinking, well, should I not worry about the way that I live then? Now, Paul was dealing with hooligans who said that too, and he said, should we sin so that grace may abound? May it never be. Okay, now here's how this works. It's a little bit of a paradox here. You see, what Christ has done for us effectually, that is, granted our perfection before God the Father, what he's done for us effectually is being played out in our lives practically. It actually has an effect on our lives. You know that Jesus was always talking about bearing fruit. The New Testament authors are always talking about bearing fruit, right? They're talking about bearing fruit, John the Baptist says, in keeping with repentance and turning your heart towards God. Jesus says, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. Here's what he's saying. The mark of a true Christian is that your perfection in Christ actually has an effect on your day-to-day life. Your perfection in life, your perfection in Christ actually has an effect on your day-to-day life. It means that God's deep love for you has touched you in such a way that you want to live for him. It means that there is growth, measurable growth, out of old sinful attitudes and behaviors and into deeper love, and holiness, and integrity, and character. In essence, you become a little bit more and more like Jesus all the time. Now, how does this process of growth take place? Well, the author of Hebrews is so glad that we asked. He cannot wait to tell us, okay? Moving on, moving on. He says, and the Holy Spirit also testifies to us for after saying, now he's quoting Jeremiah, going back to the Old Testament, many, many years before, after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, 
says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds and I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Okay, so put some brackets around hearts and some brackets around minds. Hearts, minds. See, we have to pay attention to what's going on in our hearts and our minds vigilantly because it is through our hearts and our minds that the Holy Spirit is forming us, shaping us, directing us, leading us, guiding us in our faithfulness to Jesus. Now, how does this look in everyday life? Um, God directing me through my heart and my mind. Well, here's some examples, okay? Um, for, for some of us, when we're walking in the mall and that huge Victoria's Secret poster is just screaming, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. And something in our heads and in our hearts says, nope, nope. That's the Holy Spirit saying, you are no longer a slave to sexual immorality. You belong to the Lord. You are a new creation. For some of us, for some of us, it's that reoccurring discomfort in the depths of our heart about the broken relationships in our lives that we have the power to mend. It comes back like an unwanted guest, doesn't it? For some of us, it's that feeling that you experience in the morning that says skipping over your prayers today is not a good idea. It's not a good idea. See, instead of going to a tablet or a scroll to find direction for life, we listen for God in the depths of our hearts and our minds because that is now where his law abides, through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. This is why I would say, and this is kind of practical advice, this is why it's important to begin the day not doing for God, but being with God. A lot of us are better, myself included, many days at being human doings rather than human beings. And it is so important to cut out time to simply be with God and to bask in his love and from that center to live our lives. Now, how do we do this? Big one is listening to him in his word listening to him in his word. I've made a practice of this lately, just sitting out early in the morning with my Bible on my lap, and I'm reading through the gospel of Matthew right now. And um, I have discovered that in that quiet space with the scriptures open on my lap, with, of course, coffee beside me, um, he speaks to my heart and my mind. And sometimes it's challenging when I need to be challenged, and sometimes it's a word of encouragement when I just need it so badly. I, I, I can't recommend it enough. Here, Mark, learn, read, inwardly digest. Now, um, as I said, this passage not only paints a picture of the gospel for us, that Jesus Christ has died for our sins to perfect us once and for all before the Heavenly Father, but also gives us some implications of his sacrifice that has saved us. So many of them here, I think three big ones that we're going to focus on today. He goes on, he says, therefore, now again, double underline, double underline, circle, exclamation mark, therefore, he's like, I'm about to say something really important. This follows from the gospel picture that I just painted for you. Therefore, my friends, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus. So let's stop there for a second. And circle, we have confidence. We have confidence to enter the sanctuary. What is the sanctuary? It's God's presence. It's a metaphor for God's presence. Now, here's what this means. It means that we 
because of what Jesus has done for us, have unlimited access to the Father's presence and power and blessing. Now, someone is, people have been, of course, now that I've moved to Orlando, people have been trying to tell me, oh, you got to get annual passes to Disney. There's all these different tiers. And they said, um, you know, the one that appealed to me most, they said, is the cheapest ones, and, but they have all these blackout days that you don't have access to the park, you know. Um, it's not like that for us with God. There's no blackout days. There's no days that we cannot come before him. On the worst of our days, when we're struggling with the worst of our sins, that we cannot come before him and plead for his mercy and be embraced by his arms. There's no blackout days when it comes to our access to the Father in heaven. And he says, approach, moving on. We're going to move a couple uh, verses down. Let us approach with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Underline, full assurance. He's, he's, he's beating this dead horse. Full assurance. You see, one of the reasons... Christianity was so appealing in the ancient pagan world was its claim that its God was loving and desired a relationship with his followers. People were interested in a God who was actually interested in them. Because in the ancient pagan world, um, the understanding of pagan gods was that they saw humans as their slaves to satisfy the desires and meet their whimsical needs. And so this was a revolutionary idea in the ancient world. What a God who actually invites me into his presence and loves me. What well, I cannot wrap my mind around that. Listen to what uh, one, one theologian describes, how he describes this, this situation. He says, it is difficult for us to imagine how unthinkable it was for people brought up in a pagan culture to be told that they did not need any mediation between them and God, but that they could talk to him directly, confidently, freely, like a child with its father. Nobody can take the risk of acting spontaneously in this field because he might offend the divinity. And this would have unforeseeable consequences. Whatever might have qualified as prayer in a pagan environment was dominated by guilt, anxiety, and fear. Now, listen to the Christian idea of God that we hear from John in his first letter. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. See, some of us, probably in this room today, have this concept of God as the principal who's going to call us into his office with a stern look on his face. Oh, I had one named Mr. Schwerin, and he was so scary. Yeah, I was in there a lot. Um, The principal who is going to call us into his office and give us detention or suspend us, right? Or call our parents. And, and we, we, we don't read scripture a lot because when we read scripture, we hear this angry voice behind it, right? We read, be still and know that I am God. Be still, would you? Just be still. Or we hear, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd, mister. But that is not the God of scripture who loved us so much that while we were his enemies, he died for us to make us his friends. So number one consequence of the gospel is that we have full assurance always to enter the presence of God. Number two is this. The gospel enables us to persevere in confessing our faith in Jesus. Moving on in the passage, verse 23, he says, 
Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. Now circle, hold fast. Hold fast. What is he saying? Don't let go. Don't let go. Because God, if you choose to let go of what Jesus has done for you and to put your allegiance somewhere else, God will allow you to do that. And he's saying, don't let go under the threat of persecution, under the threat of insult, under the threat of your your ego and your pride being wounded. Don't let go of the gospel. It's a call to faithfulness. You see, the, the cultural pressures that we face today would tempt us to what I call Christianity light. You know, people say, oh, you know, I like you. It's great. You just kind of go easy on the Jesus stuff. Like, just go easy on that. It's not really, it's great that it's your thing. Um, friends, the gospel calls us to faithfulness and to boldness. Now, remember, Jesus says things to his disciples like this. If the world hates you, be aware that it hated me before it hated you. If you belonged to the world, the world would love you as its own because you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Now, Jesus is not saying go out and be the biggest jerk you can possibly be because the world is supposed to hate you. Okay, he's not saying that the scripture actually scriptures actually advise us very much against that. We should be winsome. We should not be jerks. But more often, we are overly concerned with what people will think of us if we say we follow Jesus or we take a biblical position on something that is at odds with our culture's ideologies. More often, we are worried about that, more worried about that than we are open faithfulness to Jesus. And the author says, don't waver. Just don't waver on God's truth. It's everything. Because false ideas about God And life will always be beckoning to us for our allegiance. They always will be beckoning to us. Don't fall for it, the author says, or underestimate how those ideas can actually lead you away from God. Bad ideas about God, bad ideas about truth, false ideas will lead you away from the truth. And the author says, hold fast. So number two, the gospel enables faithfulness and perseverance in our confession of faith. And finally, this is my favorite, number three, the gospel forms communities of love the gospel forms communities of love moving on to the end of the passage he says this and let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds provoke one another to love and good deeds what's he saying being together doing this worshiping together gives us the opportunity to draw out the best in each other um, there's a just a word of thanks, but also recognition. There's a parking lot crew who's been out in the parking lot, and some will go out there today just to welcome people in for $5 parking. It's 50% cheaper than everywhere else for the Maitland Arts Festival. And there are people sitting out there all day yesterday, and every time I walked, drove by or looked out there, they were just having a good time talking to each other while they were serving the community. Now, that's a beautiful picture of what the author is talking about here. We can draw out the best in each other. Then he says this, oh, get ready. Some, some of you, <laughs> some of you don't need to mark this. You need to cut this out and glue it on your refrigerator or put it right on a magnet. I know this is going to hurt, but he says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. <laughs> oh, ah, ah, this, see, I always say the, um, 
church attendance was a problem in the very first days of the church, right? The, the, the priest was in the sacristy and he was looking at the attendance numbers and going, oh gosh, I got to say something in this letter to the Hebrews. But in all seriousness, in all seriousness, regular church attendance is not about keeping the rector happy or worse, keeping God satisfied. That is not what regular church attendance is about. In corporate worship, the reason we gather together is that the Holy Spirit shapes our hearts and minds and nourishes us and strengthens our faith for the journey. You see, liturgy, what we do in here, the, the, the repetition of everything that we do, it's very formative. It's formative in ways that we don't even realize, subconscious ways. It's actually forming us. Now think about how um, embodied practices form us consciously or unconsciously. So if you go to the shopping mall three or four times a week to go shopping and buy new clothes, it is going to form you in a very particular way, right? You will become more deeply and deeply consumer-oriented if you do that. But now listen, and here's the good news. There are embodied practices like putting ourselves in a pew and worshiping with the believers and kneeling and crossing ourselves and genuflecting that form us, they're formative, they form us into faithful worshipers of God. Now, finally, last thing um, he says in this passage, and this is kind of a theme in all of the readings today, and it's a very Advent theme, and we're looking towards Advent in two weeks. He says, all the more, do all of this, all the more, as you see the day approaching. And they capitalize day in there to tell you his meaning a very particular thing. Well, uh, what is he talking about? He's talking about the return of Jesus, right? He will Come again to judge the living and the dead. We say that every week, right? The day means Jesus is going to return for his people whose hearts belong to him. Thus, he says, we need a reminder that our meeting together provides a space for the mutual love and encouragement we need as disciples of Jesus on our earthly pilgrimage. That was fun. There's a lot there, a lot there to chew on. Now, just really quick, in closing... Um, look through your markings now. Just kind of look at how you marked up the passage. Single sacrifice for sins. He has perfected hearts, minds. We have confidence, full assurance. All of these things. You see the pattern here. This is the fruit of doing these sorts of exercises in the scriptures. You can see these patterns. And the pattern here is that God in his great love has done everything for us to make us his own in the cross of Jesus. He's made our standing before him perfect. He's given us full access to himself. He comes to indwell our hearts and minds to enable us, enable the holiness that he requires of us all so that we are able to remain faithful to him throughout our lives. See the pattern? Um, I know that when I do this as a personal practice, and I'd encourage you to, this is a great practice. You could just take your bulletin home if you don't want to write in your bullet a Bible in every Monday morning or Tuesday morning. You could wake up and make a practice of going through the readings. It's a wonderful way to put your heart and your mind before God and to let him speak and to let him form you. <clears throat> when I do that, my view of the gospel and of God's love, and I'm realizing how much I need to cut out time for this lately, of just being with him, um, when I do that, my view of him and his love for me becomes so much more rich. And I hope that, I hope that it will impact you as well. And my hope for us, church, good shepherd, is that we will come alive in new ways as we continue to intentionally engage deeply with the word of God so that it will shape everything that we do as a, in our life together by keeping the gospel at the center of our lives. And with the psalmist today, we will say, 
you will show me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Almighty God, you are so faithful to us and you pursue each one of us and you knock on the door of our hearts so that you can come in and dwell there. We are grateful, beyond grateful for you, the sacrifice of your son that has made this possible, that there's no more system that we can participate in to try to justify ourselves before you, but to simply believe in the perfect sacrifice of your son and to live our lives out of that place as people of the cross. We ask that as we go forward from this place today, that our hearts would be encouraged and strengthened by your love. Lord, there are some of us struggling with that. And I pray that you would open our hearts to be strengthened by your love for us and that we would uh, move from that love into the world, rejoicing in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.